Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see you here this morning. I'm looking forward to opening God's Word with you this morning. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 1. And you'll be able to follow along up here on the screen in just a minute as well. But we're going to be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. And I'm going to read to you just verse 1 to get us going. We'll pause, I'll make a few opening comments, and then we'll continue with the rest of the passages. So James chapter 1, I'll read to you verse 1. James writes this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. All right, let's stop there. Today, we are embarking on a 12-week journey through the book of James. And I trust that God's going to show us and speak to us in such a very clear way, just as clearly as the original recipients heard from God back then. And I've titled today's message, God's Purpose for Trials. God's Purpose for Trials. This is something that I imagine every single one of us can relate to. Now, the author of the book, James, he was the half-brother of Jesus, and he was one of the main leaders in the church at Jerusalem. Here's an interesting fact about James. In the Greek and Hebrew, the name James technically is actually Jacob. So let me explain. In both Greek and Hebrew, what we see is originally he was known as Jacob. In the Greek, his name was Iakobas, Jacob. In Hebrew, it was Yaakov, Jacob. So technically speaking, we're in the book of Jacob. Okay? Somehow, our English version, somehow, for whatever reason, it came about because early translators used a combination of uh, the Latin and the old French versions. And somehow they arrived at James. So really, what we're looking at is, technically speaking, the book of Jacob. But it's okay if you call him James. If you hear me calling him James throughout the series, that's okay. James, Jacob, okay? So, and I love the way Jacob, or James, I love the way James begins his letter. He says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know anything about the relationship between James and Jesus, then you know that it was a very difficult one. James, he had conflicts with his brother, Jesus. James didn't believe Jesus. In fact, James mocked his brother, Jesus. And yet, James would go on to serve in his brother's name. And ultimately, after being transformed by his brother, James would be martyred for his brother. 
The man who once mocked his brother would later die for his brother. And James wrote this letter to Jewish Christians who were scattered throughout the nations at that time. And he encouraged them through this letter because they were facing the same kinds of hardships that he himself was facing by being a follower of Jesus Christ. They were being discouraged. They were getting discouraged in their faith. And so James picked up his pen and he wrote this letter to them. And I think what you're going to find very assuring and reassuring for us is that this letter that James wrote to these Jewish Christians, they apply to us in so many similar ways. You see, because this was a cyclical letter, meaning that James wrote this letter to be passed on from church to church. One church would read it, then pass it on to another church, and then to another church, and from one generation to another. And now we have this incredible book here in the 21st century. And you'll find that many of the same subjects that James addressed in his letter back then, we still face today in the 21st century. And as we make our way through this letter, what's going to be very evident very quickly is that James was influenced by two primary sources. These sources, they shaped his letter. And the first source that he relied heavily upon was Jewish wisdom literature. You see, Jewish wisdom literature played a big role in James's letter. In fact, many have called James, many have called the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament. So when we go throughout this letter, what you're going to find is that James will bounce from subject to subject. He'll throw a seed of wisdom right over there. And then he'll throw another seed of wisdom over there. He'll drop truth here and drop truth there. And he'll bounce around from subject to subject, much like the Proverbs. The other source that shaped this letter was the very Sermon on the Mount preached by his brother. In fact, James quotes from or alludes to the Sermon on the Mount no fewer than 25 times in this short letter. James is only five chapters long. And in those five chapters, 25 times he alludes to, refers back to the Sermon on the Mount. You might say that the book of James was the very first commentary written on Jesus' teachings. And I think it's pretty cool to have your own brother write the very first book about you. And speaking of first, you might not know this, but the book of James was most likely the first book written in the New Testament. We don't often think that way, right? We think, oh, it's at the end of the Bible tucked away way back there, so it must be written like way later. No. The Bible as we know it today is not presented to us in chronological order. James was one of the earliest, if not the earliest books written in the New Testament. So that is our backdrop. Now that you know the backdrop, the background of the book of James, I want to read to you the remainder of today's passage. Starting in verse 2, I'll read all the way down 
through the end of verse 12. I'll read it in its entirety. And as I do so, see if you can hear elements of Jewish wisdom literature and the Sermon on the Mount. So let's pick it up. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And verse 12 says this, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This morning, as we look at this incredibly rich passage, I want to share with you three timeless truths about trials. Maybe you're sitting there right now and you're facing a trial. A trial that is consuming your life and your energy. Or maybe you're just coming out of a trial in your life. My hope is that God's word will provide perspective and encouragement in the midst of your specific trial. Here's the first truth about trials. As God's children, we will experience trials. That is a guarantee. We will experience trials. That's why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when we will experience trials in our lives. That's why Jesus himself said in John chapter 16 and in verse 33, he said, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Now, I just picture James sitting at his desk, pen in hand, writing this letter, picturing his own brother's words. And I have to imagine that James also felt badly 
that he was part of the persecution that his own brother faced. And I can imagine James writing this letter with tears flowing down because of what his brother had suffered while here on earth. He had to have been emotional. And by the way, one thing that we're going to discover throughout this entire book is is that James is as practical a book as you will ever come across. That's why every single Sunday, if you're here for these next 12 weeks, you're going to walk away, and I imagine you're going to be able to relate to something that you hear from God's Word. And I love the way he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's like he's covering everything in those words, various kinds. So if you're being persecuted because of your faith, James has that covered here. If you're facing financial difficulties due to no fault of your own, if you've lost a job due to no fault of your own, James has it covered. If you're facing an illness in your family, James has that covered. If you've faced death in your family, James has that covered. You know, there are some in our church family who have suffered and endured tragic deaths amongst loved ones. And James has that covered here in his letter. When James wrote this letter, he wasn't writing about something hypothetical, some unrealistic situation. He knew the reality of his own situation. He knew when he was writing this letter that at any moment he could die. And as we just heard, he did die, but he didn't just die. He was stoned to death. He was murdered. And he was martyred because he followed his brother. The Apostle Paul understood this truth as well. In Philippians 1, verse 29, Paul said this, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Now, we don't often talk about trials being a privilege. But if you're in the midst of a trial right now, please take heart. In fact, dare I even say, if you're in a trial right now, count yourself blessed. And please understand this. When we talk about trials, we're not referring to those consequences that result from our own sin or poor choices. That's a different subject. In fact, James will cover that subject in next week's passage. When we talk about trials today, we're talking about those events that happen in our lives that are just simply out of our control. And they happen in our lives because we are walking in God's will. We will experience trials. That is not only a guarantee, it is a privilege. Here's the second truth about trials. As God's children, we will grow from our trials. So yes, we will experience trials, but we will grow from our trials. The testing of our faith will produce steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, and then 
We will be perfect and complete. That's what James tells us. Another word for perfect, I want you to keep this in your mind, is the word mature. We will be made mature, complete, whole. Trials produce growth, which in turn produces maturity. You know, it's no coincidence that many people often say they grew the most during the most difficult times in their life. Do they ever say, oh yeah, I had such a great time during that trial? No. Do they ever say, oh, I can't wait to suffer like that again? No. But in order for growth to take place, there must be something to stimulate that growth. You see, muscles don't grow if all you do is sit around all day long on the sofa. We're all familiar with that phrase, no pain, no gain. You know what happens? Do you know what happens when you lift weights or you do some other form of resistance training, strength training, like push-ups or pull-ups? Something called muscle hypertrophy takes place. Yeah, I'm smart. <laughs> it's a big word. I looked it up in the dictionary. I looked it up online this past week. When you do resistance training with dumbbells or a resistance band or pull-ups, muscle hypertrophy takes place in your muscle cells. And here's what happens. Hypertrophy is the growth of muscle cells, which is the opposite of atrophy, the shrinking, the decrease of muscle cells. So muscle hypertrophy occurs when the fibers of the muscles sustain damage or injury. But we're using that in the positive sense right now. So damage and injury happens to the muscle cells when you lift weights or do push-ups or do pull-ups. And then the body repairs the damaged fibers by fusing them together thus increasing the size of the mass. So, when you're bench pressing, okay, or when you're doing shoulder presses, or when you're doing push-ups, or when you're doing pull-ups, and you're straining, and you're getting close to that final rep, 10, or for some of us, 1, right? <laughs> When you get close to that final rep, you're feeling the pain. Here's what's happening. That pain is causing growth. It doesn't feel good, but that pain is causing growth. Without hardships and struggles in our lives, we would simply be spiritual couch potatoes, and we'd suffer spiritual atrophy. Our faith needs to be tested. Tests are not fun, are they? But they are absolutely necessary. You know, in the world of science, there's a certain term, a term that we're all familiar with. It's the term trial run. And a trial run is just simply a test to see how something is working. 
And as we do a trial run, it helps us to make the necessary adjustments. You know, a few weeks ago, you might recall, I talked about how in the last 14 months at our church, we had so many wonderful drive-through events on campus. Here's the thing about drive-through events. They're not easy. I'm telling you, every drive-through event we had on campus, the amount of work that it took to set up for those events, it was exponentially more than just setting up indoors in a place like this. So much work had to be done by our volunteers and team leaders. Not only on the day of the event, but even more importantly, on the days leading up to the event, during our trial runs. Here's what took place a week or two before each of these events. All the heavy equipment and all the heavy props had to be lugged out onto the parking lot, put in place, and then we would do a trial run to make sure everything was running smoothly. And then we would make necessary adjustments. After the trial run, did we go home? No. We had to put away all that heavy equipment and all the heavy props. So much work went into those events to make them successful. Without trial runs, we would not have learned to make the necessary adjustments. Likewise, trials in our lives, they are essential for growth and learning. As God's children, as painful as it may be, we will grow from our trials. Here's a third timeless truth about trials. We will not be alone in our trials. There's nothing worse, right? There's nothing worse than being afraid when you're alone. That's why sometimes people on airplanes, when they get nervous, they hold the hand of the person next to them. Oh, hi, stranger. <laughs> Doesn't matter. They just hold the hand. I don't know too many people who like to watch horror movies by themselves. That's why even the most non-religious person, when faced with despair, often turns to God. And the comforting fact is that God is always there, ready to listen. Let's go back to James 1 now. Let's go back and look at verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7. James says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James is writing here like a proverb, isn't he? Remember, he was influenced so heavily by Jewish wisdom literature. And it shows up so clearly here in this section. He says that God is ready to dispense wisdom to all who ask, but he gives us one condition. There's a major condition. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
And I'd like to, for a moment here, paint some pictures in our minds using the words faith and doubt. First of all, the word faith. When James uses the word faith, what he is picturing is this. All in. Commitment. You are going all in. It's like going to Dodger Stadium or Angel Stadium to watch your favorite team. And your team is down by five runs in the bottom of the ninth inning. And you see all the other so-called fans making their way to the exits, get an early start on the freeways. And you're looking at them and you're thinking to yourself, not me. I'm all in. I have faith that my team will come back. And even if they don't, I'm all in. I'm not a fair weather fan. I'm sticking it out. That's what James pictures when he says, but let him who ask, ask in faith. All in. And then, when he uses the word doubt, let him ask in faith with no doubting. What he's picturing with the word doubt is this scenario where somebody has too many options to choose from. It's like when I go to a restaurant and I look at a restaurant menu that has too many choices, you know what happens? Doubt starts to creep in. Right? Uh, do I want a hamburger or pizza, pasta, steak, chicken? I'm not, I don't know. I'm not sure. I can't decide. And so when the server comes to get your order, what do you say? Can you come back to me? And then all the others have ordered. Now it's your turn. You keep going back and forth, wavering. And all the while, your friends are just kind of smiling politely. Like, hurry up. And you can't decide. That's the picture James is painting here when he says, without doubting. That's why the menu at In-N-Out, it's the best, right? It's the best menu out there. Hamburger, cheeseburger, double-double. That's it. Yeah, they'll make you a four-by-four if you want. And they don't have 10 different sizes of french fries there. When you go to In-N-Out, it's like, french fries. They never ask you, oh, which size? Sure, you can get it animal style, and that's always a good thing. But you see, when you're given too many choices, doubt starts to creep in. So, what James is saying here in the section is this. Since we are not alone in our trials, and since God is ready to meet us in that trial, when we approach him, we approach him with the attitude of, I am all in God, and we do not keep other options open. We don't think, God, I hope you will help me in my trial. But just in case you don't, I have my own plan B in place. Just in case you don't hear me loudly enough and clearly enough, I may have to take matters into my own hands. And oftentimes in a trial, we jump the gun, 
We jump ahead of God and we don't wait for Him. We, all, we go all in and we don't waver. That's what James tells us. Look at verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Sounds like a Sermon on the Mount section, doesn't it? Blessed is a man. Again, can you picture James with pen in hand thinking of his own brother writing this? to those who are suffering hardships. He doesn't say, blessed is a man who avoids as many trials as possible. That would be nice. That would be easier. But easier is not always better. Remember, God uses the trials in our lives to test our faith. Enduring trials means that we have stood the test. This phrase, stood the test, It was used by experts at that time to examine coins and to see if they were either counterfeit or authentic. So God, he examines our faith through trials. Those with counterfeit faith, they are discarded, exposed as frauds. Those with genuine faith, they're authenticated. And I know for a fact, as I look out here in our worship center, and I know for a fact amongst those watching from home that there are some here in our church who have faced some of the most unimaginable trials in life. And the fact that you've endured those trials and that you're here or you're watching online, that encourages me greatly. My prayer is that you will experience God's comfort today in the midst of your hurting. 20 years ago, in 2001, Christian music artist Stephen Curtis Chapman released a song entitled, God is God. 20 years ago, This is the 20th anniversary of that song. And and I remember when it was first released. In fact, during that time, I had listened to a lot of his music, and I was encouraged by a lot of his music. The chorus goes something like this. God is God, and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God, and I am man. So I'll never understand it all, for only God is is God. That song was released seven years before tragedy would strike the Chapman family. Some of you may know this account. Some years prior to that tragedy, Stephen Curtis and his wife, Mary Beth, had three children three biological children. They felt God calling them to grow their family. So they adopted two girls from China. 
that increased her family from three children to five just overnight. But they weren't done. They felt God compelling them to make their family bigger. So they adopted a third girl from China. Her name, and they named her Maria. Here's a photo of the Chapman family taken in the year 2008. Okay. This was taken seven years after Stephen Curtis released his song, God is God. That's Maria sitting on her daddy's lap. She was so loved by her parents. She was adored by her five older siblings. In 2008, shortly after this picture was taken, Maria was playing in her front yard when she saw her older brother pulling into the driveway with her family SUV. She raced toward her brother in the driveway. But the height of the SUV made it such that her brother didn't see her. And so the SUV struck Maria. She was airlifted to the hospital, but she was pronounced dead. You know, just hours before Maria's death, the Chapman family was getting ready to celebrate her brother's high school graduation and her older sister's engagement. Later, when Maria was buried, she wore the flower girl dress that she was going to wear to her sister's wedding. Following the tragic death of Maria, Stephen Curtis almost quit singing. He almost quit his singing career. But he eventually realized that Maria would have wanted him to continue singing. But what makes this even more remarkable is a year before her death, he released a song called Cinderella. And that song was written about his three daughters. I encourage you, later on, go to YouTube and type in Stephen Curtis Chapman, Cinderella. And listen to the lyrics of that song in context, in the context of this story. He thought that he would never be able to sing that song ever again. But again, he came to the realization that Maria would have wanted him to. And a year after Maria's death, he released an album titled Beauty Will Rise. And then a year after that, in 2010, Maria's mother, Mary Beth, wrote a book called Choosing to See, A Journey of Struggle and Hope. And even more remarkable than that, the Chapmans, who had already been involved in an orphanage in China, Later that year, in 2010, they worked with that orphanage to open a brand new branch, and they named that branch of the orphanage Maria's Big House of Hope. 
God is God, and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God, and I am man. So I'll never understand it all, for only God is God. Would you bow with me? Father, I imagine there are trials that fill this room right now. I imagine there are trials that fill the homes of those who are watching right now. Thank you for the reminder through your word that we will experience trials. But through those trials, we will grow. And that we are not alone in those trials. So thank you for the encouragement that we receive from your word. It's not always easy to know these things, to count it all joy. But help us to see trials in a new way today. That it is a privilege to suffer for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.